Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you been writing those letters to yourself? Dear Evan Hansen, this is going to be a good day, and here's why. I started one. Those letters are important, honey. They're going to help you build your confidence. I guess. Can we try to have an optimistic outlook? Huh? Can we fuck up just enough to see the world won't fall apart? Maybe this year we decide we're not giving up before we've tried. This year we make a new Start. Hey, I know. Hello, all you theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome back to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. I'm your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And today's a very special day, and I'll get into the reason why in a minute, but first let me introduce our guest. You might know her from her work with Broadway News, you might know her from her own podcast, why we theater or you might know her from cuny tv where she was on theater all the moving parts with yours truly please welcome to the podcast ruthie fearberg thank you so much for having me matt i'm so excited to be in discussion with you again shall we say i'm so excited too uh you know we had i thought we had such a blast doing the sondheim yeah so did i i I had a lovely time and i knew that I needed you back in my life to discuss theater, to be your wonderfully verbal, intelligent, opinionated self. Like all I would, things you could definitely say about me. Yeah, and I, I would say I'm the same. But the truth is that lately, as I've gotten into my older age, I have had a lot of struggles finding the right words. So I'll start a sentence that I'm really confident with, and halfway through, I go, "You know that word." It sounds like the word nuanced, but it's not nuanced. Like, that's that's how I do things now. Well, allow me to help you because I'm the word person. I mean, it's your job. It's, it's the job. It's the job. So here's the tea, everybody. I asked Ruthie to be a part of Problematic, and she was super into it. She was super ready. But because Ruthie is a working girl with many uh, professional contracts to her name, uh, a few of the options that we had were taken, in particular one musical, Dear Evan Hansen. Now, after that happened, Ruthie was so gracious and agreed to come on and just talk about the season 
now because as I spoke with uh, Rob Schneider, things have changed since that last episode. But then things changed even further because after Ruthie was like, oh, absolutely, I can I can be, you know, malleable. The audio of my episode of Dear Evan Hansen got corrupted and I don't I did not have enough time to get my former guest back and edit and record that episode again. So Ruthie is is the lucky lady, the lucky lady who has agreed to be uber generous. And she is going to both talk about the rest of the Broadway season updated 2.0 as well as. Dear Evan Hansen. Now, we cannot go as far into the show as we usually do on Broadway Breakdown because, you know, we're discussing a lot of stuff. Yeah, and, there's a lot to get to. And I cannot hold Ruthie hostage for nine hours, much as you would love it, guys. I just simply cannot. So th- let's consider this Evan Hansen uh, part one with Ruthie, and we'll have a part two sometime between now and, you know, June. Sure. Yeah. And that could be Ruthie again. That could be somebody else. I might bring Ruthie back in March to discuss God knows what, or the Tonys in April or May. You know, hey, this is I'm th- here for it all. This is what it is. Now that I've gotten my monologue out of the way, yeah, Ruthie, wh- where do we want to tackle first? Do we want to get into? I mean, I feel like we set up Dear Evan Hansen. We shouldn't make the listeners wait too long for that. <laughs> sure, let's do that then. I'm okay. also like always ready and raring to go about Dear Evan Hansen. Phenomenal. <laughs> so, for the uncultured fucks out there, what? <laughs> is Dear Evan Hansen about? Well, now that the show is out there, we don't have to use the like cryptic log line of when it first came out in, you know, December of 2015. So we can say that it is about Evan Hansen, who is a senior in high school, when one of his classmates um, dies by suicide. And Evan himself was in therapy and doing a therapeutic exercise where he was writing letters to himself um dear evan hansen and that letter had been found by his classmate before the classmate died and so when the classmate died i feel like i'm doing a bad job of this i actually want to rewind (laughs) okay take two dear evan hansen obviously evan hansen at the center of it um an anxiety-rattled teenager, senior in high school, really going through it. And he's not the only one because what happens pretty early on in the show is that one of his classmates dies by suicide. And through a mysterious happening, um, it is believed that Evan and this classmate, Connor, are former best friends. And... It is a little bit of a lie that turns into a big thing of a lie and an avalanche of a lie. Um, And it has to do with what happens when you're really socially anxious. It has to do with what happens when you're in a family that experiences sudden grief, what happens when you're in a community that experiences sudden grief. Um, A lot of complicated emotions that all of these creators tackled with Mm -hmm. that one. How did Dear Evan Hansen come into your life? Dear Evan Hansen came into my life because at the time I was working at another publication and um, a colleague of mine had seen it down in D.C. and was obsessed with it. So it kind of was on my radar from that moment. But I saw it at Second Stage when it was off-Broadway and fell so deeply in love with it. Mm-hmm. 
I am a person who lost multiple classmates during my time in high school. Um, I lost in my sophomore year, I lost a classmate who I really didn't know other than by name and face. Um, I went to a really large high school and, you know, different social groups. It's how it works. Um, he died in a house fire really tragically. I mean, not that there's such a thing as non-tragic death unless sure. I guess you're 140 yeah, and peace, peacefully, peacefully close even. your eyes. Yeah. Um, but when it's that young, certainly it's always tragic. So he passed away my sophomore year. At the beginning of my junior year, I lost a friend who I actually grew up doing musicals with. Um, she went to the other high school on the other side of town but in the summers everybody came together and did musicals she pin curled my hair every single night for our run of guys and dolls and she died because she had an aneurysm while driving a car Mm. what the heck three weeks later someone who i knew really well i wouldn't say he was my best friend but i had you know six out of eight classes or something with him and we really had known each other since we were i don't know 11 years old Um, he died also from injuries sustained in a car crash. And then in my senior year, my neighbor from two houses down died by suicide. So I lived what the characters in this musical, in the high school of this musical lived. Like I think about the Alana character a Mm. lot. Um, but I know the Cynthia Murphys of this world. I know the Larry Murphys of this world. Mm-hmm. I know the confusion when you are that young and someone dies. I know what it is to experience, like, how much right do I have to this grief? I only kind of knew them. And this musical felt like someone understood that and saw that and was telling the world that for mm-hmm. the first time. Because... Even just in my high school, I wasn't the only teenager experiencing that. And there are so many teenagers experiencing this all over the world. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, most of these happened before any of us were even on Facebook. Um, Facebook got to high school when I was in my senior year. Mm-hmm. And so that added layer of social media, which honestly, if you put on a production of Dear Evan Hansen today would have to change entirely, right? Yeah. Like TikTok wasn't in the wasn't original production. Yeah. Yeah. It really was mostly like Facebook posts and Facebook groups and a GoFundMe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think all of that is incredibly mm-hmm. important. And so that's how I first came to it to very lengthily mm-hmm. answer your question. And then um, I saw it when it came to Broadway Um That was my second time seeing it. Um, But I had interviewed Benj Pasek and Justin Paul on the red carpet of the Drama Desk Awards that year for the Off-Broadway production. And then, you know, once a show starts to open, there's the press day. There's the interview for this part of the publication. There's the opening night. And then, of course, once it was nominated for Tony's, it was just constant talking with Mm -hmm. Stephen Levinson and Michael Greif, um, the book writer and the director, respectively, Ben Platt, who originated the role of Evan Hansen. So I I feel now um, very close to the creep very close in knowledge, I should say, to the creators of the material. They're not like my best friends or something. Um, 
but I feel like I've investigated it very deeply and many, many times. Wonderful. I first saw Evan Hansen, like your friend, in D.C. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I knew nothing about it. My mother, friend of the pod, Danny Tickton Copley, came on. <laughs> she was going to a wedding in D.C. and she wanted me to come spend the weekend there with her. And there's because I wasn't going to the wedding, there was an evening that I had to sort of entertain myself and I didn't know what to do. And, and couple- so you go to the theater. Exactly. <laughs> Friends were like, oh, there's this new musical at the arena. It's Pask and Paul. It's Ben Platt. And, you know, those were all names that meant something to us theater kids, but they weren't huge. Like Pask right. and-, and Paul made their bread and butter at first as part of the YouTube musical theater writer brigade. Sure. Like Ryan Scott Oliver, Kerrigan and Loudermilk. And they have been the ones of that generation to continue Really break on. out. Yeah, yeah exactly. And and I think, you know, mature and, and get even sharper, um, at least for a time, uh, I, we can't talk about Greatest Showman because then we'll, I'll go off on a major tangent. But <laughs> with Evan Hansen, I thought that was definitely their most mature, nuanced work. Hmm. And, you know, Platt at that point was really only known for Pitch Perfect right. and, you know, being a replacement Cunningham. So I was, I was excited to see it. I ended up sitting next to Will Rowland's parents in the... Half oh, that's em- so funny. Yeah, in the half-empty mezzanine, by the way. And I remember really liking it. I thought that so a lot of the music was wonderful. I thought the story was really fascinating. I thought uh, Ben was wonderful. There was a lot going into it that I really enjoyed. And then I didn't see it at second stage because I just knew it was going to transfer. Go. Yeah, everyone knew. And so I – similar to when Hamilton was at the public, which I somehow was lucky enough to see. That's I, crazy. Truly, I, I – Right place, right time. But also, you felt like it was that much of a sure thing. I did. That's funny. I did. Well, I was so new, Mm -hmm. really, to the business at that time. So maybe it really was. But my memory, you know, I didn't have the tentacles in the places that I do now. Well, so, okay. So, and this is something we'll we'll talk about it when we get into the season. Sure. Um, For me, it's not even about, like, the quality of the show so much as every – now and then you really can tell when the buzz around something yes. is real. Mm-hmm. And it was very real for Hamilton. It was real for Dear Evan Hansen. It was real for Fun Home when it was at the public, which mm-hmm. is why I got very impatient that they took so long to transfer mm-hmm. and then got very worried when they did. I was like, oh, did they lose the momentum? They didn't. It's fine. But, you know, every now and then with an off-Broadway show, there's like there's a difference between when something is sold out and hard to see and when it's truly the kind of show where, like, everyone's talking about it. It has all this right. attention. Like, it's got to move somewhere. And so I thought Evan Hansen was good at DC, but because of how it was being treated at second stage, I was like, oh, this is absolutely going to transfer. We're just waiting. And uh, Hamilton was just about to win all their Tonys, and mm-hmm. so there was there were a lot of eyes on Broadway and what might be the next show to continue the legacy of, right. like, radio play and being a cultural phenomenon, and Evan Hansen was very much primed for that. Yeah. So, again, similar to Hamilton, though, I got to see it at the public and all my family wanted to and they couldn't get tickets. And I said, let us wait till they go on sale for Broadway. You tell me what my ceiling is for tickets and I will make sure we all have seats. <laughs> uh, and because of that, I got to see it again with my mom and grandma the night before it opened. My dad saw it the night after it opened. And my dad and I had really good seats for Evan Hansen like a month into the Broadway run because of because I was like, let's wait. Let's have the foresight and then let's pounce. Sure. So I saw it again on Broadway about two and a half years after I saw it at DC, and I once again really enjoyed it. Did not cry, but I admired the craft of it. Because mm-hmm. by the time I saw it, even though it hadn't been on Broadway very long, it already had the reputation of, like, people go and they, and they sob. And cry. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the you go and sob show. 
And so, I did go and sob, and I did go and sob multiple times. There's, there is one moment in Evan Hansen that really forclems me, even when I watch a bootleg of it. There's... I, I can I guess what it is? Well, I'll well, let just me tell you so, what mine is. Let me tell you what okay. you well, let me tell you what gets me in most things and then you can guess what it is in the show. I have a really big soft spot in movies and shows when a parent Yeah, duh. Yeah. Duh. I didn't even need the clue, Matt. There you go. Ruthie's like I can read you for filth, baby. When Larry collapses. <laughs> yes, bitch. And you will be found. Fa- it is yeah. it is it, there is nothing. I like. I'm gonna. I actually like. Mm. That's the power. Of I just got power the chills, yeah. and and there's nothing more powerful than when the parent or when a person who has been unable to feel mm-hmm. cracks open, and it floods them. Mm-hmm. And how could you not? Yeah, cry at that. It's. It's the delayed emotional gratification. Mm-hmm. And for you, so it's that, and also in movies and shows and TV shows, when a parent recognizes that their weird kid isn't just weird, they're like artistic or they're whatever, that always gets me. People laugh when I tell them that the Lego movie makes me cry, but it's when Will Ferrell realizes that his son wasn't just messing with his Legos, he was making a story and then hugs him. I know, right? Lego movie. Yes! But I believe you. Yeah. No, it's a beautiful moment. Um, Point is. So, yes. But I'll Larry. also say, like, kudos to Michael Park. Yeah. Because the landing of a nonverbal moment, particularly in a cacophony of sound. Yeah. Like, at that There's, height of, music, of musical forte. Yeah. Is the thing that you have to nail. And he nailed it every time. So, do you know, then, why... This was selected for the problematic question mark series because I want to make it very clear. I told this to Ruthie in all of our correspondences, but and I've always told my listeners on every episode. It shows you're mad at and their possible redemption. This does not necessarily mean a show that I think is morally wrong or a show that I love or dislike. It's a show that has had some kind of backlash at some point analyzing that, analyzing the show and going like, is this warranted? Spoiler alert, most of the shows I've covered... Uh, up until now, and I haven't released all the episodes that I've recorded yet, the answer has been, like, the show is not problematic. It can be a product of its time, and, you know, time has not been mm-hmm. kind to it in terms of how we've lived. Uh, it could be just a major misrepresentation or miscommunication with audiences. A bad production can often do that, or a bad yep. movie version can do that. Mm-hmm. But problematic... So... I've, I've quoted him before, and I'll quote him again. Our dear friend Patrick Pacheco, which is how we mm-hmm. met, when he heard the title of the series, he was like, well, problematic means like a problem show, right? A show that can't be fixed. You know, like Can't Eat or oh, Merrily. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I was like, technically speaking, Patrick, yeah, you're right. People are not using it that way. They're using it to define shows. As that they morally have... problematic. Exactly. Yeah. And every now and then there's a show where I'm like, you know what? Yeah, like, let's discuss what is it that the show is saying, because there's just because a character says or does something doesn't mean that's what the show is saying. Right. Right. And there are t- and I would like I would love to discuss it as much as we can as much as time permits us today with Evan Hansen how often the show is not condoning something that's happening and how often it's like we're not condoning it but we kind of want you to cry anyway. And that is up to each of us to decide. Uh there are moments that I didn't used to question mm-hmm. and then the movie happened mm-hmm. and I and I've questioned it a bit. <clears throat> but then I watched the bootleg in preparation for this, and I was like, I don't know again. Because I think part of what made the show work for me on stage 
was that, you know, yes, there were these songs that have now become anthems on the radio, but that's not the show's fault that they caught on with the masses the way that's they did. That's 100% right. And, you like, you know, you will be found when you watch it in context of the show and also, like, how Michael Greif staged it. The, the tone of it is very different than how it's performed in an arena with Hugh Jackman and with that's extremely people. true of so many songs yeah. right like send in the clowns it's not about the circus it's definitely not about the circus but even out of context it's usually not about the circus but <laughs> out of context it's this general like I've missed the boat on something yeah within the context of a little night music it is I missed the boat on this relationship and I'm realizing it now with this particular person who I had a chance with. (coughs) It's it's super relatable egg on your face. And it's someone who, speaking of like the Larry of it all, a character like Desiree who put together such a confident, sensual front for two and a half hours and then decides this is the moment that I'm going to be vulnerable and shoot my shot because I think I can do it. Right. And then... Even... Just because you used the phrase, phrase, this is the moment, made me think Jekyll and Hyde. Sure. You can have that song of this is the moment be literally anything. Someone taking a leap into doing anything. Not into becoming the devil that incarnate that is Mr. Hyde, right? I, like, I, I can't get into Wild Torn. That, I, <laughs> I, I, I refuse. I will not do it. That's fair. But I'm just saying, like, especially songs with a pop sound. Yeah can stand on their own, can be uplifting, can be ascribed meaning to, that has nothing to do with the way they were written within the book of a musical. And I don't think that that's a fault of creators. Like, oh, they should have foreseen that this maybe was going to be taken out of context and then therefore shouldn't have been so seemingly... um, Praiseworthy is not even the the right word. More um, like saving almost mm-hmm. of their of the character. Mm-hmm. They're not responsible no. for the way an audience reacts. They're never responsible, actually, that's, for the way an audience reacts. That's art. It's you create the story that you create, and then audiences respond how they respond. Yes. P- so. This is so we come back to the question, which is why is, is Dear why is why is Dear Evan Hansen a part of this series? Sure. And the obvious answer is simply it got backlash eventually. Yes. And I was r- sort of going back into the history of how that began because it was so lauded early on and was considered this beautiful jewel of a musical and oh how wonderful that is coming off the heels of Hamilton Broadway is back at the forefront of pop culture it's a fascinating tale it's nuanced and Ben Platt what a performance and right around the time that Platt was about to leave there was a bit of a turn with some people on the show Hmm. and I, I was reading up on it and it's a couple things are true. First off is... Did they re-review when... In, were critics officially invited to re-review? No. Okay. It, wh- I'm just curious. A, so a couple things happen when it comes to Broadway shows. No matter how popular the show is, only a certain number of people are seeing it every night. So it's right. different from like a movie where 10 million people can see it in a weekend. You know, Evan Hansen, we're talking, you know, 4,000 people from Friday to Sunday every week, no matter right. what. No matter how huge it is. Right. And... When a show from Broadway breaks out in the way that Hamilton or Evan Hansen did, 
more than just like the theater nerds are listening to it or reading the plot or anything like that. It, like it, we're talking people on major podcasts, on talk shows who don't usually go to theater, who aren't used to kind of breaking down stories this way, the way that we are, which is not a judgment call. It's just the fact. And two things happened. One was John Lovett on the podcast, Love It or Leave It, Mm -hmm. saw Evan Hansen around the time it won their It's Tony Mm -hmm. and had a bit of a rant on his podcast about how sort of jokingly, but sincerely at the same time saying that the main character is a sociopath and that the show is all about a lie and it's very um, deceptive. And people who didn't see the show kind of latched onto that. They 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 read like his, Which his is simple. Always the problem. Every show. The one at the book club that didn't read the book. Yep. What you want to want to like one of the most fun games to have in the world is is to write a byline for any Broadway show ever. It sounds ridiculous. It sounds terrible and stupid. Loglines are just difficult. Loglines are difficult to write for anything. Yeah, but it's like you know, oh, uh, a rock musical about the last week of Jesus, and he's kind of over it. And you're like, <laughs> you're like, what? Why would you do that? Um, but it, or you're like, oh, a discotheque about Amelda Marcos, and we're not going to ever talk about her shoes. And it's like, what? I don't like that. One bit. But these things do happen. So that happened, and that kind of got into the uh, pop culture vernacular. But the other thing that happened was, in addition to the fact that the show became incredibly successful, and it doesn't matter how good the show is or how good a movie is or whatever, when someone or something reaches a certain level of popularity and mainstream success, it's no longer the underdog and it's now ripe for the picking to get deconstructed and taken down. Yeah, I think that that's true about pop culture. Yeah, I mean, and on top of that, in the fall of 2017, right around the time Ben Platt was leaving, Mm -hmm. and this is something I didn't realize at the time, was when the Harvey Weinstein news broke and then the Me Too movement resurfaced and the narrative of these men who lie, these lies mm. that get covered up, we cannot accept this. Every every person who's ever done wrong, no matter how small or big, must be taken to justice. And that is not to say that there's any Me Too-isms to Evan Hansen, at least not in my viewpoint, but... I think we both can agree when there is a lot of passion and heat behind a movement, many things can kind of get sucked up into it and how we're feeling in the moment can then view, can then filter how we view art. You yeah, know what I mean? Especially because also in that moment, you're looking at people and namely movies, but also other properties that you saw as one way and all of a sudden you're like, wait, this wasn't how I was told it was. Mm -hmm. And so when you re-examine the things that you're being told to re-examine, you also start to re-examine the things that you're not told to re-examine. And that's not a problem in and of itself. No. But I mean, so I talked about this once on the pod as well. Like all art, you know, it's all subjective, but also how you feel about any movie or show whatever it's your immediate impression just comes from where you are in life at that time that you absolutely and you can it's why i went back to the show more than once it's why you know obviously why revivals happen it's and i've i mean i don't think this is a hot take but i do think after 45 got elected in 2016 Mm -hmm. there was so much sadness and anger and confusion and frustration Mm -hmm. and that was something we couldn't really change for a while yes and we had to channel that into something and there was a lot of good that came from that the me too movement um black lives matter resurfacing and whatnot but with art it for 
a community that talks about how like gender and sexuality aren't binary we've become very binary in how we look at art yes it's got to be this it's got to be that and it can't have anything with regarding conflict or mistakes you know if if a character does something that is not cool the the story is thus problematic and i'm like no that's a character making a human fuck up like we all do or well i think i think what some people okay well let me even rewind to just say that I don't think, while I understand why Jarevan Hansen is a part of this problematic question mark Mm -hmm. discussion, um, because of the backlash, and quite frankly, because long before the backlash, there were some people who saw this show and were like, what? He lies. That's messed up. And I was like, exactly. Mm -hmm. Like, you're supposed to get that. But I will say that I fully fully stand by the opinion that the musical is not problematic Mm -hmm. that the character evan is problematic what he does is certainly problematic Mm -hmm. but that the musical about problematic people or things does not have to be and in, in this case is not and i feel so strongly that i wrote i don't even know how many words it is maybe it's like 2500 words um a piece on Medium called In Defense of Dear Evan Hansen. Mm-hmm. Like, I felt so incensed because of exactly what you're talking about that this was a paragon of how we have started talking about art. Mm-hmm. That Dear Evan Hansen was just the poster child of the moment, but that it really scared me and continues to scare me that we need our theater to be black and white. Mm -hmm. That we need to be told this person bad, this person good. When this person who we thought was good does something bad, they are now a bad person and I want to see them punished or else that means the story is not calling them bad and therefore the whole thing is corrupted and bad. And I think that's where people go with Evan Hansen that they think Think, and I also think this is false, but that they think that Evan gets away with it because the aftermath really is, if you're talking about percentages mm-hmm. of time of stage time, it is a fraction of what happens on stage. But Evan does lose everything. There are consequences for him. The consequences are not that he thinks he's a terrible person and lives under his covers for the rest of his life and can't show his face to the world. And I wouldn't want that to be the case. And I think if people sat for a minute and thought really hard, they wouldn't want that to be the case for a 17-year-old kid either. Yeah. Or anyone of any age who made a mistake. Like, I'm a person that believes in um, remorse forgiveness, second chances that come with change, that come with the work. Not just like, ah, yes, everybody gets a second chance. If you come and you say, I've done wrong and this is how I'm going to change it, then let's give you the second chance you've earned. And I do think that, spoiler alert, by the end of this musical, that is Evan's path. I think he he takes responsibility and... Maybe it's not in the way everybody wants, but he doesn't just, like, get to go off gallivanting. He doesn't take the Murphy's money and go off to Harvard or some university that he'd never be able to pay for on their dime. 
it's not like the entire town forgives him and everyone says it's fine and he keeps dating Zoe until they get married and everyone lives happily ever after. Like, that's definitively not what happens. And so I think that showing that there are consequences, but showing that the consequences don't have to be life ruiners Mm -hmm. is really important. And that's actually something that Stephen Levinson, the book writer, spoke about. That he was like, if we're telling kids or anyone that the worst thing you ever do is the end of your life, what kind of message is that? Exactly. My So, <clears throat> first of all, I love all, everything you just said. <laughs> and I want to continue talking about it right after this break. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. And we're back. What a wonderful break that was. So, no, I agree with you with all of that. And, you know, I, you know, we're we're talking to someone right now whose favorite musical is Carousel, whose favorite Disney Mm. movie is The Little Mermaid. Two stories that hinder on their protagonists making bum decisions and having to learn from them and one and one in particular literally about forgiveness uh which you know you'll hear more about that on the carousel episode with our dear friend juan ramirez oh cool yeah it'll be a good one uh but something that i kind of i i have many thoughts with evan hansen and i agree with you about so much of it where i got started where i started to get confused was when the movie came out they made a lot of small changes to the story Mm -hmm. that felt like they were trying to address the internet backlash and I thought it actually weakened the argument of the show with the changes that they made. That's so interesting. For me, anyway, because I think what makes the show work, especially in the staging of it all, is that it lives so much in the gray. And mm-hmm. it's so easy to, on paper, hear the music or read the script and just see nothing but saccharineness. And I thought what the original production did so well was it cut into that. Mm-hmm. Grife's staging was not incredibly emotional the set design was actually very cold it uh, very much showcased the isolation of the social media age Mm -hmm. and there was you know a very dark design and so even and all of those characters right like it's a tiny musical with seven characters that even when they're all on stage what you really have them as are you know stars very far apart I don't mean stars as, like, actor stars. I mean, like, stars constellations that are really distant, physically distant from one another, that when you make a movie, you inherently fill out the world and, like, kind of color in the spaces between those dots. Yes. The original staging reminded me a lot of George C. Wolfe's staging of Carolina Change, which also did a lot of isolation Mm -hmm. to highlight how lonely everyone in that show is. Sure. And the first of all, film is a very literal medium, and so you already are working, um, you know, going upstream with that battle. And then on top of that, I just also thought that you know, cutting so many songs from other characters uh, undercut the potency of the show. And they they claimed it was because you know they really just wanted it to be Evan focused, come from his perspective, which did not help the narrative of the Ben Platt. Nepo Baby Backlash, which I also want to say there is a false narrative that this show was written for Ben, that it was bought for Ben. That is not what happened. Not what happened. Ben auditioned for Dogfight, was 
deemed too young. And about two years later, Pascal Paul called him back in for an untitled musical that they had been working on with Stephen Levinson for a while. That's right. And he was a natural fit. He did three readings of it, I believe, and then a workshop. And it was at the it was either at the last reading or the workshop that Ben's father came to see it because Ben's father is a producer. He was one of many who were invited. Mm-hmm. He was simply the one who was most passionate about getting it up off the ground and moving forward. Mm-hmm. The movie came out. They were sorry. They filmed the movie around the time that the Hamilton Pro Shot was released before the Waitress Pro Shot was released. There is now a new way to preserve performances from Broadway. Rather say a, well, a, a, the, a, a, the a new trend. Was, the option was there, certainly. It's a it's an expensive option, not that making a feature film isn't, but by that point, Ben was no longer in the show. It's true. So um, but the same is true of Sarah and Waitress. The, I think the difference is that there I think and th- maybe this is me being cynical, but I think there's also just the the temptation of when you make it an actual feature, the property has a new chance to get recognition with awards bodies, with a new audience. People are more likely to see a feature film than a pro shot of a stage show. I also think that unless you're Sarah Bareilles, that is just true of a capture, even though personally I'll prefer a capture, capture over a film adaptation. Mm-hmm particularly of a musical, any day of the week. I So many stage works, I think, do not translate to film. Uh, and on top of that, there are so many directors who just don't know how to make a movie musical. They're, whether they are visually creative or really good with dramatic scripts and actors, it's a really difficult task to yeah, do. Yeah, it really is. And you have to have a real reason. The same is true... When you're making a musical from, not that, you know, Dear Van Hansen is original, but if you're making a musical from source material, Mm -hmm. you really have to have a reason to see it on stage and for it to sing, as we always say, but not only for it to sing, for it to make sense to sing coming out of scenes unless you're going to be all the way sung through. And those transitions are really hard to make in a contained stage space and then therefore when you go from a contained stage space to anything goes because it's film you can put this in all different spaces that's another big transition that you just have to really know why you're doing it Mm -hmm. and I think that it can be done like John M. Chu in John M. Chu we trust after In the Heights because personally I loved that adaptation. So, but I'll also say that when it comes to the Dear Evan Hansen movie, I've only seen the movie once. Mm-hmm. I, like I said, I know the creative, the excuse me, I know the creative team and the creation story of the musical mm-hmm. very deeply. I saw that multiple times in multiple forms. I listened to that cast album, so I'm just far more familiar with that and the intricacies there and whether or not that is problematic spoiler alert it's not um then then the changes that were made for the movie agreed i think the problem is movies are far more easily accessible to the of masses of course right? and they're and, much more lasting and they and therefore people view that and make but a I comment think the, on the backlash show. actually came Oh, the black backlash came before, right? But it people came before now before the film actually was released, knowing that it was coming. I think for me, 
for me in my life. Uh, the reason why I bring up the film in terms of my confusion with the show is I saw the show and I thought there was absolutely no question about what it was trying to do, what it succeeded at, where the creatives were coming from. And then I got confused with the movie because of the changes made where I was sure. like, oh, did was that not what your intention was? Because as I said, you know, yes, there's a lot of sweetness to the show. There's a lot of heart to the show. But I think what makes the show work as well as it does is there is an intelligence and a bit of a cynicism to blend in with it because what Pask and Paul talk about where sort of the idea came from was they both came uh they went through a high school experience where uh students had uh taken their lives and they watched how their classmates made it about themselves and watched how they started spinning narratives that weren't true and they, yeah and, and they, I have seen that happen too well I think it's just I think that's true of all of us for anything I mean I the this is not nearly as dark but how many times do we see when a, a celebrity passes and everyone we know goes on social media and goes oh this one hurts yeah and it's like their their work meant a lot to you and that's wonderful but i'm always like you didn't know carrie fisher sure. harrison ford knew carrie fisher right so don't and I just, and yet at the same time i don't want to say that that response is wrong it's not that right it's, like it's not that i don't want to say that you don't have a right it's, to your feelings and to certainly feel connected to a person, but it be, there's or the a, persona of that person. Yeah, but there's a there's a centeredness around it that always rubs me the wrong way. I bring up the Carrie Fisher because I remember specifically when she died, and eventually Harrison Ford released like his statement of of how he mm-hmm. felt. A lot of people I knew were very angry about it because like. It was him saying, like, oh, she was so beautiful and I loved her and all this stuff. And, like, she was more than just her looks and how fucking dare you. And I'm like – and I and I sat there and I went, Harrison Ford knew Carrie Fisher right. intimately for 40 years. They were friends. They were former lovers. Like, they had a life together that we'll never know. You don't get to tell him right. how to grieve his friend. That's right. Uh, and, and and so that that was something where it was – I'm we're all upset. It's a tragic passing. But – but None that of us... idea of, like, is it about you? Exactly. And I think that's what Pask and Paul were seeing people do, was rather than live in the moment, be honest with themselves of this person passed and that's awful. I didn't know them, but I, I grieve for the people that, it, you know, who did and, and whatnot. It became, well, no, no one has, no one is feeling what I'm feeling because it's, it's a, it's, is about me. But I also think audiences are transposing the creator's commentary onto the piece itself. By which I mean, audiences are saying, oh, because they told this story, they're saying that it's okay. Or Mm. because they make Evan sympathetic, then they are sympathetic to Evan and condone what he's doing, right? It's the leaps between things Mm -hmm. that are the problem, quite frankly, for me, that telling a story and believing that a story has merit is not the same thing as condoning a person's actions and that putting a person at the center of a story and I actually think that Here Lies Love since Mm -hmm. you brought it up is similar that like the 
sole act of putting someone at the center of a story does not make them the hero. It makes them the protagonist. And we've come to use those words interchangeably, and that's incorrect. Mm -hmm. With Evan as a protagonist, it means that he is the prominent character in the story. It means that we are going to see many things from his perspective, although the beautiful thing about theater is you see it as your own perspective, looking at a thing Mm -hmm. through the fourth wall. I think that the telling of the story itself does not say this person is good. It says that this person is worth looking at and this idea is worth looking at. And quite frankly, I also don't think this was Pastic and Paul saying like any judgment, positive or negative, towards the people who make it about them. Whether you're Alana or whether you're Jared or whether you're Evan. It was just, these are some reactions people could have served up to us. And if you think, I really think that everyone's backlash Mm -hmm. is actually towards themselves. I think people are pissed as hell that they feel for someone who did wrong. Mm -hmm. Because it's so much easier to say, in the words of Alex Edelman, oh, I'm such a good boy (laughs) because I believe the person who did bad things is bad. But what happens when I start to feel for and understand why the person did the bad thing? Mm -hmm. And there's also a difference between understanding and condoning. Mm -hmm. And I think that anything out there in the world, be it art or science, or whatever it is that creates more understanding, more compassion, without necessarily letting people off the hook, Mm -hmm. that will only breed goodness. Because when you understand something, you can figure out how to change the outcome for the next time. If you understand, oh my God, my interpretation of why Evan did this is because the look on Cynthia's face was just, how do you say you didn't know her son? How Mm -hmm. do you say he didn't have friends? How do you say that to her? Combined with the fact that, like, Evan is such a socially anxious person that he just is a people pleaser and says whatever it is. And is also a child. And is also a child. Yeah. So I don't see any world in which that understanding is a problem because maybe if we look at those three things and say... Okay, these are the three things that led Evan in this version of the story to tell this first lie. Mm -hmm. What if we look at how we're helping children understand grief? What if we look at how we're teaching children to interact with adults who are dealing with grief? What if we teach adults how to interact with teenagers who are, what right? Like, what if we look at all of Mm -hmm. those things that led to a lie and think, well, if this should happen again, What will lead to the truth? Something that I love that the show explores, and I wish they'd explored it more just because it's the story that I now gravitate towards in this winter of my life. Hmm. And I'm glad you said Cynthia, because it's the Murphys in particular. The complexity of, because part, as you said, part of what leads to the lie taking root is, as you said, Evan looking at her and not knowing how to tell the truth to her face which is that your son did not have friends connor was not 
a kind person. And and also what that would mean about him. You have We well, also have to remember that Evan's kind of looking into the eyes of his own mother in some ways, knowing that, again, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. like Evan had a suicide attempt. He did. And so what would it be for another kid to be looking in Evan's mom's eyes and saying, Evan didn't have any friends? So I, I've got like, but, a, I've got, yeah. yeah, no, so, okay, laundry list. I'm going to start with the Murphys because it all trickles down from there. Something that the show explores and part, again, part of the reason why the lie grows the way it does is there's a difference between, you know, someone uh, having a physical illness that ends up taking their life or being in an accident and someone coming to the conclusion of their journey that they are going to end their life on their own accord. To an extent, yes, yeah, because that is that is a conversation that I. I mean, I think this is a little this is a little beyond my expertise, and it and it goes with. I will just put it out there, and then we'll mm-hmm. follow down this this road. That you know, the terminology around suicide has changed a yes. lot from you know committed suicide is something we no longer say. We say died by suicide because mm-hmm. it is still the result of yes, illness. Exactly. Be it, albeit mental illness rather than physical illness. Yes. I, I, but yes. Yes. Uh, I think it was two years ago, three years ago, some, I was talking to someone about it for a story that I had been writing. And I think I had said like, oh, the choice. And they had said, well, it's not really a, a, cho- a choice. It's it's a conclusion. This is, this is, yeah. the, this is where their road has led to. And, in, yes. and this is also something that I know people discuss with, Evan Hansen of, you know, the the forged letters and Evan wanting to paint this rosy picture of Connor and then people like Alana saying, well, why would he, you know, uh, unalive himself if he was doing so well? And, you know, then there's also the argument of actually that's a common misconception. Many people, as they come to that moment of their life, actually do have a sort of more surge. Po- yeah. yeah, because they feel like they're finally taking control or mm. they, they or they know that it's coming and that the pain will go away mm. soon yeah. uh, this is and guys you know this is this is a topic that is going to be discussed a lot in the series it already has been it's been discussed in downstate it's been discussed in promises promises it's discussed in carousel and heathers which are, will be coming up but the with someone like cynthia and larry it's not just you know the pain of their child being gone it's the Lack of answers. There's no closure. Yes. They are so confused. They don't know why. And they're just looking for answers anywhere. And Larry's immediate response is to just go, he was troubled. He was a troublemaker. He had demons. Leave it alone. And Cynthia won't accept that answer. And it's mm-hmm. how the whole orchard thing kind of comes about. With, And I will say the orchard is something that I feel... I don't get moved by the end of the show, I think partly because of The Orchard, and I'll get into that in a second, which is just mm-hmm. that, like, what's supposed to be a very moving thing, because it's based off of a lie, it's not the morality of it so much as, I'm like, it's not really closure for Connor. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. It, sorry, I'm getting off track. That's, that, we're we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that, I swear. Again, it's one of those things where I'm like, pretty, I don't cry, though. And I, that's, that's just been me exploring why that is. Uh, I love that dynamic of the Connors because then you also have Zoe, who, in my mm-hmm. opinion, or at least uh, Zoe in Act One is one of my favorite characters. I I get frustrated that that arc isn't explored deeper in Act Two becomes because she and Evan get linked in a more romantic way, and that becomes. But I also think that that could be very accurate to teenage hormonal oh, experience, right? That like she might just 
get hugely caught up in this new relationship and you fill a hole with something else, it's, right? It's not a criticism. It's It can be absolutely accurate. It's more me being like, I, I wish. It's Exactly. Yeah. And, and that, and sure. again, and when you're criticizing something, rather say, when you're talking about something in a critical way, you always have to kind of have two minds of what is it that the writers int- uh, were trying to do and what, it, and did I want something different? If I wanted something different, I can talk about that, but it can't be a ding against the writers because yeah, yeah, yeah. they set out to do what they wanted and they did it. Um, but with Zoe, you know, the pain that she feels is is halfway between her mother and her father because mm. she also, you know, and it's what makes Re- Requiem, in my opinion, one of the better songs of the show because it is exploring this idea of just because my brother is dead doesn't change who he was when he was alive, how he was to me. And yes, he had a mental illness, but that doesn't change the trauma that has been inflicted right. upon me. Right. I, she's like, I can't sit here and call him a martyr or, a, you know, a conflicted person. Basically, I can't sit here and be sad. Yeah. There's a lot of relief, I think, yeah. in Zoe's character. And, and I think guilt for the relief. Yes. And, and you know, she's caught halfway between... Uh, her parents in that respect and also like kind of having to parent her own parents in this grief Mm -hmm. her mother who is trying to paint a picture that isn't accurate and her father who just won't talk about it and what and she's she's a child herself she's 16 what do you do with that and i love that part of the story because i think it adds to the complexity of dear evan hansen it's not just that connor was a good kid who tragically you know or died by accident or you know was struggling in a, in a very easy to understand way that the whole audience can go but of course this is lifetime baby uh <laughs> you know it, it's it's a lot more faceted than that and so evan is conflicted a for a person he never really knew who the, his few interactions with him were not great and then seeing people who are kind to him and all, and they want answers, and and his immediate response is just to give them something. Right. He's just trying to he's trying to put this chapter to a close. And unfortunately, lies like this, they just they're they're stones gathering moss. It just it, it, there's no way to not have it snowball. It just it's how it goes. Right. Um. But you know the whole for forever number happens purely because Cynthia is so desperate for any kind of closure. Yeah. She just hears tree. And she goes, he took you to the orchard. Right. And everyone else, and I also love like everyone at the table is like, what? And like they don't even remember the orchard for a second. It takes them a minute. Mm-hmm. But it's because she is so intent on it. Where the show loses me with the orchard in the end is that because they continue perpetuating the myth that Connor loved this orchard that his family used to go to. He took Evan there. That's where the Fort Forever dream sequence happens, whatever. And then they do the whole GoFundMe with the orchard and all these things. The final scene with Zoe and Evan, and correct me if I'm wrong, Zoe's the one who reaches out to Evan, right? After when a year goes by and... No, I think he reaches out to her. He reaches out to her, but she's the one who decides to go to the orchard. Because he says, why did you pick here? Yes. Okay, I think that's why I was confused. So he reached, he a year after everything unfolds, and I also want to point, and we should talk about this as well when we talk about forgiveness, Evan does admit to his wrongdoings. Yeah. To the to the people who in most matters to um uh fuck confess to. I was like <laughs> I'm Jewish. I don't do confession. I'm like what's that word? <laughs> Burn. But um he he and Zoe are at the orchard. She 
tells him, I wanted you to see the orchard, you know, we saved it, whatever, all this stuff. And I think because I look back at it now, I'm like, well, we actually never know if it meant anything to Connor. But that's the thing is that, so I don't get particularly emotional at the end because it's at the orchard. I also think that for argument's sake of dramatic structure, you're not supposed to get all worked up at the end again. Like, this is resolution moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But the whole thing for me is that the orchard has now become significant to this family. Mm -hmm. And it was a thing that they all... Connor was not the only problem within this family, right? The very opening scene shows, like, one kid going this way, one kid going that way, the dad being pissed that he's late for work, and the mom being like, I don't know how to do any of this where's the map yeah and so it's a fractured family to begin with not it's not like some tight-knit family with a black sheep yeah you know it's a fractured family that whether the root of why the orchard could have or should have become important even though that's the lie Mm -hmm. the fact is that they do gather around this orchard And so I think it's a healing spot for the Murphy family. But I also think that just in the scheme of the musical, it is proof that, again, mistakes aren't fatal. Mistakes can lead to unintended consequences. Sometimes those are terrible and sometimes those are good. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make the mistake more acceptable. Again, it's just saying that like these here is an option and a menu of things that could happen. <laughs> Musicals a are like... A <laughs> good thing, like the revitalization of an orchard and a family healing around it, is a good thing that can come from really messed up stuff. A good musical is like a pasta bar where you choose your own adventures. <laughs> Many options and they all can go together. No, I agree. I think something that people mistake in the final scene when Zoe says... Um, you know, you helped my family. Something along those lines, mm-hmm. right? People, I know a lot of people who get like very worked up about that, and they're like, he, "That's him getting away with it." It's not. There, something that I know that I have felt because, you know, uh, when when Hillary Clinton was running for president in twenty sixteen, and she uh, she was talking about how. She had originally been opposed to gay marriage, but she came around and, and changed her mind. And mm-hmm. um, Dan Savage, who's a very prominent queer, you know, uh, reporter and podcaster, someone asked him, like, well, how can you accept her? Like, she was against it for so long. What Now that she changed her mind, like, that... that That's what you have a, to well, hope for. He says, when someone uh, comes from the opposite side to your side, you don't berate them for not coming over sooner. You say welcome. And exactly. I think the same is true of any kind of healing or, um, break emotional or mental breakthrough that anyone has. There's a judgment that like, as we were saying earlier, you know, people want everything to be squeaky clean, have a perfect journey as Alex Edelman says, and I'm a good boy. No, they want no paper trail. They want no mistakes. Everything's got to be, it's not just that you have to have come to a good moral thinking you have to have always felt that way or if you didn't always feel that way your journey to it has to be perfect in terms of drama and theater that's boring it's absolutely boring no one wants to see someone stay the same over two and a half hours that's the whole point all good stories are people making mistakes and the wrong choices for 90 percent of the story learning (laughs) and then starting to make better choices after that right um i also think that i'll just add that like while the things that evan made up about connor are not true 
They're also not not true. Mm -hmm. The whole point is that you don't know. That the loss of Connor is a loss of knowledge. Right? That no one seems to have truly known him, whether that was the the sunny sides of his personality or the mm-hmm. dark sides of it. That, And that's why Cynthia had that searching look on her face because she didn't know. Yeah. And so I also think that, like, well, he just made up everything that Connor was. He absolutely did make it up. Mm-hmm. That's not debatable. This is, that's but the story. But whether he accidentally hit on some truth, we do not know. It's true. It's true. They say you put 12 monkeys in a room with a typewriter and give them an infinite amount of time, they eventually write Shakespeare. You put you, <laughs> you, you, you say enough lies, eventually you hit on a truth. I mean, my father would say, you know, oh, well, actually, I shouldn't say what my father would say, but I will say what other people say. A broken clock is right twice a day. Yeah. You know? Or, you know, a broken in glove is... The right, right way. Gl- right, the right way to break a glove. <laughs> Can you... Okay. <laughs> Can you explain to me the importance of that song outside of just Evan having a fatherly oh, moment? Yes. Okay, please do. Because I still don't know. Because I don't... I wouldn't say, like, melodically the song is significant at all. But, yeah, it's... I think it's wildly important for the parents in the audience. Mm-hmm. Because the whole song is about this dad who was convinced there was one way to do it. And I tried so hard Mm -hmm. to make the one way work. And then it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And there is a... I think it's also key to show Larry's side that he cared, right? Because without that song, it really is like, he's probably, right? Like, he's probably already high, right? Mm -hmm. At the beginning. And knowing that and feeling unchanged and he's removed and he's distant and he shrugs off Cynthia's grief because my kid was a problem. But when you watch and listen to that song, you learn that that reaction is protective on the part of Larry because he tried so many things that didn't work, that the only thing he can think to do then to protect himself from probably Mm -hmm. his own self-harm of like, you know, what, like you must feel when you feel like you have failed your child. Mm -hmm. It's protective to then say, well, I, I tried. It was the hard way, Mm -hmm. but it was the right way. It's what my father taught me. Right. Because that idea of breaking in a glove is also like very generational. Mm -hmm. It's very like America's pastime sporty dad. Um, So I think that that song, I think that not having it in the movie, um, I think there's a, I think there's something missing there for not having it. I, even though, again, it's not the waving through a window vocal pyrotechnics, right? First of all, (laughs) damn Daniel, never have I thought that I would truly think about this song in that way and now i have so thank you but also i I mean i I do think it was a major mistake not to have more material from other characters in the movie because i think having those perspectives from heidi from larry from cynthia is what makes the musical far more adult 
than people mm. give it credit for because it, it has so much maturity to it. And I think musical. that's also why it did so well, right? Like yeah. it wasn't just talking to the teenagers in the room. It was talking to the teenagers in the room, the grown-up teenagers in the middle in the room, and the parents in the room. And parents really felt like they could bring their children to it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just, not that there's anything wrong with just, but it wasn't just I'm bringing my kid for a theatrical experience. It was, I'm bringing my child to something that we're going to share. Yeah. Because then I'm going to be able to talk to them about this. And that is a gateway to conversation about other things, which I think there was also, and there probably still is, though we've all been now enveloped by it with COVID, that we're all looking at how everyone communicates and how everyone is lonely. But at that moment in time, we were really looking at teenagers and their isolation and what are they not telling us and how do I get my kid to open up to me? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that was something that made it a financial success as well. Which leads us to Heidi, Mm -hmm. a character who I think... Is just the tits, if I if, <laughs> if I if I may. I think that character is a wonderful character, Rachel Bay Jones, unbelievable, incredible. And what I love about Heidi, because it's everything you were just saying about parents trying to re- relate and communicate with their kids. How do I raise this person to become a person in the world? And how do I let them? Sorry, how do I let them know that I am there for them? That they can talk to me. What is it that they're going through? And you watch Heidi not necessarily be like a female Larry. It's not, she's not doing just one thing to try to communicate to Evan. But I would argue that it is coming fr- – she is kind of going back to a similar well, which is like a well of positivity. And it's mm-hmm. not toxic positivity. She's not trying to cover anything up, uh, which is – the diff- you know that's the difference between actual positivity and toxic positivity. She's mm-hmm. willing to talk about anything, but she's always going for the like – hang in there kitty you can do it kid mentality because she thinks that's what her son needs right now is like ultimate support ultimate confidence like let's go let's do this sure and as she says in act two when all the cards fall apart and she reads the letter that started the whole thing and realizes that it was a letter that evan had written to himself and she says i'm sorry i didn't realize how in pain you were I, I she saw obviously the pain that he was feeling, but she didn't see just how because deep it I was. also think that you know anxiety and depression are two sides of the same coin, mm-hmm. and more mm-hmm. often and certainly in the case of Evan, anxiety was the thing that was she was able to see and that we were all able to see. But we it's not the, the depression, depression, yeah, and the the pain that goes with the depression that that she yeah. couldn't see until she read that letter. I think that what makes that final scene with Heidi and Evan so powerful is it is her not forcing, but demanding that he sit in this moment with her now. Now that she knows sort of where he's been at and what he where he's at now, it's we're not going to this is you know we will eventually make it through and all that. But it's you no. Know, that's so interesting. I I don't know that I saw it that way, but I I I can see it that way. I think it's what leads me to so big so small though. Well, yeah, I mean I'm just thinking about so big so small and I think that what she's offering for the first time is validation with the cheerleading. 
right? It's like, it was always like, you're going to do great and you're going to do this and da, 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 da. And it was like unintentionally ignoring, well, why does he feel like he can't do great? That mm-hmm. you need to cheerlead. Like you're skipping the first part. And so the first part of so big is it is so big right now. Mm-hmm. Valid. Yes. It is huge. But soon it will be so small. And that's the cheerleading part of we will get through this to the part where you're going to be great and it's going to be okay. And I think she's also, for the first time, taking accountability for her own stuff and acknowledging her own feelings, right? Like she's also modeling for him, right? She's giving him that entire story of the day that her husband left her. Mm -hmm. The day that she felt like everything was so big, it was the biggest failure she ever had. Because the whole time, we don't see her failing. We see her fighting. Mm -hmm. We see her working the job. We see her leaving comments for the essays. And, right, like that's her version of succeeding too. It's not just cheerleading and and prodding him. It's like this is how I'm going to do good Mm -hmm. is by getting him to do good. And so by also showing him her vulnerable side, her pain, her sadness, a time when she felt like this and now he doesn't see her as that is kind of the proof that like, oh, there will be another phase. But by far to me, the lyric that is the most important part of that song is, and I did, Mm -hmm. and I do, and I will, right? That's her acknowledgement of it all. I didn't do it all right. I'm not doing it all right in this exact moment while I'm singing to you. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to try, but most certainly I will mess up again. And that also allows, gives him the permission to say, I did mess up. I have messed up in this moment and I'm probably going to mess up again, but it's not going to be for lack of trying the next time. Mm -hmm. There's the side of Evan that we don't, I think a lot of people forget is actually a side of himself, which is whenever he's talking to the quote unquote ghost of Connor. Yeah. Which I feel like best could be described as a physical manifestation on stage of depressive thoughts of the antagonistic Mm. thoughts only because when in act two, as the anxiety starts to come back as the lie gets a little too big for him to control and he's having second thoughts about how far he's willing to go Maybe he should come clean. And that ghost of Connor says, you can't do that. You're in too deep. You tell them they're going to hate you. No one's going to speak to you ever again. You're an awful person if you do that. Oh, yeah. I guess and I see that in Act 2. Act, act 1 is... In the first act, I'm no, thinking it's, of, it's, like, no one deserves to disappear. That doesn't no. feel very depression thought to me. No, that's but. that's more of that's more the seductive thoughts that, that lead you into the cave of sadness. But um, Act 2, Connor, that is absolutely where it goes. And it leads to that conversation with Heidi where, you know, once he's confessed and she reads the letter and all this stuff and he says to her, you know, if you knew who I was, what I did, you know, you would hate me. And she says, I know who you are mm-hmm. and I love you. Mm-hmm. And that is, for me, that living in it moment. I've seen what you've done. I know it. I know it. And I know what you've been through. And I still love you. You need to hear that. Mm-hmm. because you know as you said 
he's going to fuck up again and she's going to fuck up again. But like, as you do that, know that I am here. But I'll, and I'll also say though, that I think the beauty in the story is not only that Heidi says that, but that essentially Cynthia says that mm-hmm. again later, right? I think a lot of the backlash and a lot of why people think it's problematic is because once it, once letters start coming out, the fake Connor letters start coming out, mm-hmm. and then there's this internet backlash calling the Murphys terrible parents. Mm-hmm. What does not happen is publicly no one finds out that Evan was the one to write them. Yeah. Privately, that happens. And I think there are a lot of people who are like, Evan didn't get his because the Murphys didn't say these were fake all along mm-hmm. and we did all these things for our kid and you don't know anything about anything. Mm-hmm. But I think that therein also lies more beauty. I think that the Murphys are the adults in the situation. And they chose mercy. What was it going to do for anyone to say these letters are fake? Actually go back to being mad at this 17-year-old kid. If they could even manage to push the wave of the internet off them and onto someone else. Yeah. Right? Like, what? Why? Why keep hurting each other? Why not? What they decided to do instead was say, this stops here. Mm Mm-hmm. The pain is going, like, we're going to do our healing, and that's when our pain will stop. We're not going to inflict this back on Evan. That's hopefully where his pain is going to stop. We are going to choose mercy above vengeance. Mm -hmm. And Evan still loses the girlfriend, the potential free ride to school, the second family of two parents that he always wanted, the trust of the entire school community. He still loses all of those things. But it maybe wasn't as, like, ugly and he got his Mm -hmm. as some people want. But I think that, again, we have to look at ourselves and say, well, why do we want that? Mm -hmm. And turn it on its head and say, like, in the mercy, in the compassion, in the understanding, in the gray – is where the lessons lie mm-hmm. in this musical. And that, again, you can have problematic people, and you should have mm-hmm. problematic people at the center of drama to help us make the right decision, right? This is yeah. all still a play. Yeah, It's to help us in the real world do the right thing. Ultimately, we, the audience are like all the high school students in Dear Evan Hansen. What happened to Connor and with his family is not about us. It is about them. Mm-hmm. We are not, it is not for us to make a judgment call on what, how they react to anything that happens throughout the story of Dear Evan Hansen. That is who they are. And as you said, they chose mercy. And what does that mean for us? What are we to take away from that? And with and for those reasons, <laughs> I deem this not, not problem- a question and not problematic. Yes. Well, the one thing I also just want to say is because we still have a whole season. To we, we have to talk about a whole season. The one thing I want to say though is just um, 
there's there is the song "You Will Be Found." Yes, I just want to talk about it for a hot second because I sure. think I think that song encapsulates so much of what makes the show work. Mm-hmm. Where I do think the movie kind of lost its way, and why you can't take out of context things of a of a of a show, and then and then judge the show based off of that. Or you also can't judge a show based off of its marketing. Because that song became – that and, like, waving through windows sort of became, like, the anthems of that show. Sure, but I also don't think it's a problem. It's not a problem. <laughs> it's not that it's a problem. It's that that song – rather, I should say, I don't think it's a lie to say that to, – to imply in the marketing that you will be found through seeing the musical. Because – as I sit here and started at the very beginning, like mm-hmm. I did find myself not in Evan and in the his actions, I found myself other places. And like I was saying, these parents and these teenagers, I think there was a lot of finding and discovery. Yes. Also. Yes. Yes and also. Okay. <laughs> what I love again, what I love what it does in the show is it's like the whole theme of the show in one. Evans gives this speech that becomes You Will Be Found, and it goes viral, and it really helps a lot of people. And that's beautiful. It helps Larry. It leads to that moment that makes both of us just go, oh, yep. God. Mm-hmm. What the musical – this is how I – this is how, in my opinion, you know in the musical, in the stage version, the writers and Michael Greif are not saying, hey, you know – not only should you like Evan, you should be moved by all the things he's doing. Mm. Because the way that they stage the number, the way they do all of the social media viralness, the way they have it happen, the way that Ben played it. And I I never saw the uh, following Evans, but he wasn't particularly happy in the act one finale that You Will Be Found went super viral. Because it was all, it was there was an anxiety that came with the more people hear about this the more likely it is that someone's going to poke a hole in this story, as is what happens with Alana in Act 2. Yeah. I always viewed it as... I also think there's probably just baseline anxiety of like, oh my God, so many people are looking at me. Yeah. But that's... But as I said, you know, when a Broadway show goes to the mainstream, it's going to eventually find the people that don't like it and then have... And are going to, you know, make a whole narrative online about what's quote-unquote problematic about it. The, The line I've always said about You'll Be Found is that for the... For the rest of the company, it is you will be found. For Evan, it's you will be found out. Someone, mm. Someone's going to catch you at one point because you're – I mean, this is me now going on my own tangent. But like, he is a child and he is smart, but he's not so smart that he can fully cover his tracks. He he leaves breadcrumbs that get picked up in Act 2 by a fellow student. Like, he, he didn't do a super great job. And it just takes one viral video. I mean – how many people, you know, got super famous very quickly from a viral thing or whatever, and then more information comes out about them, and it all just, you know, falls apart. Sure. Yeah, there was that dude who, like, asked that question at the Clinton-Trump debate where he's like, say one thing about each other that you admire. And everyone's like, oh, my God, you didn't pit them against each other. How wonderful. Then it turns out he was, like, one of the top leakers of the fappening when, like, all those Hollywood actresses' photos got leaked. And it's like, you know, you get the whole world on you. Your skeletons come out of the closet. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes the show so incredibly complicated in a great way that I enjoy is that it has this song that can be so powerful and so moving and is powerful to those characters. But it has that undercurrent of tension. And then the song became a theme for the show, which is wonderful. As you said, people have found themselves with Evan Hansen. And also, 
objectively speaking, she a bop. <laughs> but like, there's a difference between Hugh Jackman singing it in Madison Square Garden with the New York City Gay Men's Chorus and how it is played in Evan Hansen, the stage musical. Definitely. I think also what doesn't help is that the movie took out that undercurrent of tension and just made it a moving moment. And there's... And, Interesting. And, and like can, I said, I really can't speak to that. It's one of the few things I remember point blank because it was something that I was always so thrilled about the stage show was that how they did that. And then when that didn't happen in the movie, it was like, it may, that was a moment where I went, did you not understand what made this so powerful on stage? Because it was that double-edged sort of moving, but also tension. And it was just trying to go for the jugular in the film version. And again, I don't blame necessarily the writers. It, this the director of the movie had had a vision and a way that they wanted to sell it and that they thought they could make it into a uh, into a cinematic feature and it might have worked for some people it didn't work for me so that's just me explaining that dichotomy sure and now Ruthie has decided Evan Hansen <laughs> no question mark it is unproblematic unproblematic for me in my life hold tight because there's a part two that's gonna come out sometime in 2024 I'm gonna get someone who hates all of it, and is going to listen to this episode, and it's going to say, I took notes to everything Ruthie said. Point A, no. But uh, that's for another day. Let's get into a season, shall we? Let's get into a season. Before we do that, we must take one more break. Really, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. You're a Coolidge dollar. And we're back. Okay, so Ruthie, <clears throat> since I last recorded about this season, some things have changed. Some shows are closing. Some no other shows have announced. And there might be a show or two that hasn't announced yet that we might be getting in the spring. I think the trickiness with spring, there's this theory that I just don't think is founded because it keeps being um, disproven that if you're a new work and, you know, you're not based off of IP that many people know, you don't have a movie star you know, if, if, if you're that, you got to open in the spring because you're closer to Tony nomination time and closer to the Tonys. And and therefore, if you get nominated for stuff, you have a better shot at, you know, making money and, and actually becoming a runaway success. And we've had enough shows that aren't based on well-known IP or don't have a movie star in them that opened in the summer or the winter and did well. And then we've had a million shows that have opened in the spring that did not. Right. And I think that, I mean, producers will tell you this, that... Some of them think they need the time to build word of mouth. Mm -hmm. um, so they are angling for a fall opening rather than something so close to Tony's that you don't have any time to re really build your message. Yeah. Um, and then there are also pretty much every producer will tell you, you take a theater when you can get a theater. Mm -hmm. Like there's only 41 of them and they are not all the same size in terms of playing space and number of seats in the audience. And depending on the budget of your musical and the running costs, like all of there are all of this to say of the 41, which is already a limited supply, there is a further limited supply when you take out the nonprofits. And then there's a further limited supply of the ones that are right for your show. And yeah. so when you are offered a theater that is right enough for your show, I don't know that you even have the luxury of 
choosing so much whether you want to open in March or in November sometimes. There's also, again, I mean, awards help just in terms of visibility, right? Yeah. and, and, And with ticket prices being high and, you know, critics not having this way that they once had, awards just can help in respect of getting people who are on the fence about seeing your show to maybe make the commitment of going like, well, it won this, so maybe I'll give it a shot. But that's not the be-all, end-all, and it's not no, the, it's not it's, always the deciding factor for a producer of why the show comes in when it does. You know, I mean, part of my job is looking into the data of all of this. Like, mm-hmm. Broadway News is very data-forward, and Situation Group and Broadway Direct, I want to say, was... I think it's the two of them. Yeah, Situation, which is an advertising and marketing firm, and Broadway Direct did a collaborative study together. Broadway Direct provided some raw ticketing data for a limited number of theaters, and Situation surveyed a number of theater goers. And in terms of motivations for purchasing tickets, like they asked if the show has won a Tony or Tony's and how influential is that? It's not in the top three motivating factors for certain demographics. Mm-hmm. I don't want to misquote the research and it's much more complex because they do it by geographic location. They do it mm-hmm. by demographic um, age. They do it by other demographic measures. But that was something they asked about. It is less significant a motivator than it used to be. Mm-hmm. So word of mouth being a direct recommendation from a family member or friend is still like one of the top things that makes someone buy a ticket a celebrity being in the cast a celebrity they know being mm-hmm. in the cast is really high but yeah and tony awards still affect it yeah it's just a matter of like are they affecting it the way they used to affect it there's no one thing that guarantees a ticket purchase never ever ever no (laughs) many things can contribute and you know i think the way it's you know it's when you're on grubhub and you're looking for a place to get you know a burrito and you look at (laughs) the ratings but the end but then you're also looking at the price but then you're also looking at the delivery time but then you're also looking at yeah it raining or is it a nice day and do I want to walk or do I want a delivery person and they have a delivery fee or not? Right. Exactly. And it's all of those things. Yeah. You, everything is weighing because in on you, a purchase. You want to take a chance, but you also want to have as close to a guarantee as possible that you're going to get your bang for your buck. And that's why, you know, yes, Tony's help. A critic can help. Word of mouth can help. You need, you need a lot of things to kind of get your show going. If it's something that people don't know very well or doesn't have a celebrity in it, you need to get something to keep the ground running, something to get people talking about it. Um, and we've seen some shows have success with that, with a very clever marketing campaign and then word of mouth helping in that respect. Some shows have been able to get it for a short period and then it kind of dies off for one reason or another. And it's, you know, for all of the data, it's not an exact science because it's, art and art is right. something that you can't really predict the success of um in terms of this season is there a trend that you're starting to see with how the, you know, what shows are coming out or when they're coming out or where they're coming out sorry that was very vague no i, I mean is there a trend <clears throat> i 
I don't think so. I also think (laughs) everybody's talking about how crowded the season is. Let me tell you, this is how it always is, folks. Mm. Like, those last two weeks before nominations, always a show a night opening. It's. I think we just have kind of amnesia, like the same way that mothers do after they give birth. They literally have a hormone release that creates an amnesiac effect so that women will have children again and i feel like there must be something similar happening i say this out of love and not disrespect to anyone who's ever given birth but that like we always forget every year that like this is how it is Mm -hmm. there's just a zillion shows that open up it's busy in the fall and it gets right like there's a few weeks in each spot this past fall was much more spread out. Yeah. That's actually more the anomaly of this season than the spring being crowded. I think what people are emphasizing is not the number of shows total opening. It's the number of musicals and particularly new musicals. Yeah. So that is slightly larger than we've seen in, a in recent years. Yeah. We're doing the data on like historically in the past 30 years in the past maybe if we have the time 50 years like how many musicals truly ran at once not only the new musicals that were coming or the new productions I should say yeah so that is inclusive of original and revival but new productions and also the ongoing right because all of these shows are still technically competing with the Lion Kings and Wicked's of the world Mm -hmm. um but yeah I I don't know that there's I don't know that there's a trend. I will say maybe score-wise, I'm seeing a trend that like where the music is coming from are from people who we haven't heard of them like writing musicals before. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to say they're non-musical writers because that's categorically false since they all just wrote musicals that are opening up in the spring and I don't like to prognosticate who writes musicals and who doesn't. But we'll say that they haven't done it before. Mm-hmm. So Ingrid Michaelson writing The Notebook. Um, Pigpen with Pig Waterford. Pigpen with Waterford Elephants. Um, is it the Jameson Collective with The Outsiders? Maybe. I, I, I think that's their... Gosh, if yeah. I'm wrong, I'm going to be very and embarrassed. Is, but, it, is it Adam Rapp who wrote the book for The Outsiders? Yes. That's Yeah, I was like, there's one name in that creative scene that I actually know. But... Justin Levine also, I should say, like also wrote the music, but it was with With. the Jameson Collective. Um, So seeing names from, and you can't call those people mainstream music, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're not. I don't know. They have, I mean, they have their followings, but sure, they're so. Ingrid Ingrid Michaelson does not have an Eras tour, right? So (laughs) that's if any trend I'm seeing. Maybe that. And sure. and also the sound that they bring with them. Mm-hmm. While Matt Gould, for example, with Limpica, um, is someone who has been writing pretty much strictly musicals. Like, I don't think Matt Gould released an LP or anything mm-hmm. um, of, of songs that do not exist within the context of musicals. But the sound of Limpica, while singular to Matt and to that musical also fits into this like more quote contemporary sound whatever that means what it means to me is that like you could hear it on the radio and it wouldn't sound like Comden and Green or Cole Porter 
or Lerner and Lowe or Mm -hmm. Rodgers and Hammerstein. Like, I think maybe this is what our era of musicals is going to sound like, that in 50 years from now, someone will be like, it's not sounding like Michelson and it's not sounding like Gould. And it's right. But I think there's something to that. Yeah. I mean, Compton and Green, Coleman, Stein, Richard Rodgers, like they they were influenced by the music of their era, just like the people who right right now are influenced by their era, as you were saying. But I have I've listened to one song from Lampika. I couldn't tell you which one it was. I remember thinking Probably Woman Is. Probably. Probably. To be honest, I was listening to it in the shower. Uh <laughs> and maybe that's why it sounded so fluid to me. But I mean of of the musicals coming in this spring, we have quite a few transfers. I saw Hell's Kitchen at the public. Oh, yeah. And let's not forget Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen coming in at the Schubert. I saw Days of Wine and Roses at the Atlantic. Same. Uh, we'll see how they do. I saw. I feel like there's one more I'm missing that I also saw, but I can't Suffs remember. Suffs at the public? I was supposed to see Suffs. They canceled our performance due to COVID. Oh, no. I know. I'm excited to see it because Shayna Taub and I both went to the manor. I don't know what to expect. Um, Honestly, I don't either because I've heard they've done a lot of work on it since the public. As have I. I've heard they did a major overhaul. Yeah, the Hell's Kitchen transfer is obviously a faster transfer as is Days of Wine and Roses from the Atlantic. Yes. Hell's Hell's Kitchen's transfer is the kind of transfer that we talked about on the last series, which was the big move, which was off-Broadway to Broadway transfers Mm -hmm. of every now and then there is an off-Broadway show that moves to Broadway so fucking quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Hamilton obviously was quick. The rent was a month in between New York Theater Workshop and Broadway. And even though this revival of Merrily is relatively quick, but closer to a year in between productions, whereas Hell's Kitchen, it's like a three-month layover. Yeah. I'll be interested to see if they, what changes they do make. Because they just got a grant to, uh, for, for like more development on the show. Hell's Kitchen did? Yeah. Interesting. It, I don't don't ask me the name. It, it literally was in Playbill this afternoon while I was at work and I just like I skimmed it and something about the grant was just about like it was for de- more for, de- for Sure. Uh, it was for more development. And I think that show I would like them to have more development because I think there's a lot of potential in there. I think that the main girl is is a star, but um oh, I'll leave it at that for now. I I I don't like musicals that rely super heavily on narration. Sure. I, I'm a, I'm a bigger fan of scene work, but I and I think show, when there is scene show work. instead of tell exactly. Did you see Ain't Too Proud the Temptations musical? I did. Yeah, another that was a show where for me every time a scene started to get cooking, that was when Derek Baskin would turn to the audience and give narration, and I was like, no, mm. we were like, oh, Sam, off topic, but fuck it, it's my podcast. It was the, <laughs> it was the scene where his girlfriend tells him that she's pregnant, and I'm like, ooh, interesting, and there's a beat. And then he turned to the audience and he goes, when she told me she was pregnant, I'm like, no, no, live in the moment. I this play out. <laughs> live in the moment. So I big, so small, baby. Though that's like, you know, Dominique Mariso is one of my favorite playwrights, period, let mm-hmm. alone living playwrights. And I'll just say that, like, when you're trying to capture so much time mm-hmm. as the full careers of these, like, artists who have had decades long mm-hmm. careers, it's like a victim of the story you're oh, trying yeah, to tell. And Jersey Boys kind of set a false narrative of how of doing narration and having it work, but 
I don't I don't want to give the implication that in order to have a successful jukebox musical, you have to always have narration. It yeah, is, it can be done without. I mean, Hell's Kitchen. Well, we'll see if it's successful or yeah. not. But it is a jukebox musical for the most part. Yeah, relying on um, Alicia Keys' catalog with a few new songs. A few, yeah. Um, and you're right. She does have. It's a lot of narration. narration the, so we'll see. Yeah, I. If if they were to make any immediate changes for me, it is uh, more Keisha Lewis, who is just <laughs> uh, when every time she comes on stage, I just I lost myself. And I think they can cut maybe two or three different times that Shoshana Bean serves dinner. I think <laughs> I think she does it just a, a little too often, but. That's just me. I know Michael Grimes like very obsessed with how real the food is she's serving. That's real salad she has. I'm like, I just want more Shoshana Bean. Yeah. Like I don't care what. Have have her serve us music. Less less food, sure. please. She's not in waitress no more, Michael. <laughs> That's all I'm gonna say. Is there something coming that you're extremely excited for in the spring? Well, I'll also just mention that yeah. since in the, in the musical conversation, that again, neither of these are originals, but they are new with the Wiz. And cabaret coming. Oh sure. Um, because let's let's not forget that both those revivals are coming, and so is Tommy. Um, if you think for a second I forgot that the Wiz is coming in this season, you're sorely mistaken. Um, I feel like I need to consult the list about like what am I? I mean, I don't know. I'm at, look. I try not to prejudge mm-hmm. when I haven't seen something. That being the definition of prejudge. <laughs> Thank you, Ricky. Um, but I, I do, I do try to withhold like, ah, uh, this is a jukebox, or ah, uh, this is a revival, or ah, uh, this is whatever, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, I have seen artistically successful pieces that have a Hollywood studio movie for its source material, or a completely original idea for its source material. I have seen jukebox i have seen jukebox by 25 composers and jukebox by one composer i have seen you know a danced fully choreographed musical and something that is more like staged movement like i have seen every iteration and one version of all of those right has worked and so i never want to say that like the form or the premise or the whatever is the thing that like turns me on or turns me off Mm -hmm. because I really want to say that like prove to me. Yeah. Prove to me that you can make it work. Um, Great works come from anywhere. But looking at the list, what am I most? Oh, can we switch to plays for a second? Oh yeah, please. There are two in particular that I'm pumped for. Prayer for the French Republic was I guess 2022 off Broadway. Mm-hmm. I saw it twice. It was the best play I saw that year. And as much as I raved about it, I still couldn't get everyone to go in time to mm-hmm. see it off Broadway. So the fact that we get another chance. And it just extended. And it just extended two more weeks um, at Manhattan Theater Club. I'm interested to see. The fact that it's a blended cast mm-hmm. in terms of some people returning from off-Broadway, some new people. I think you don't often get that. Like, sometimes you get, like, one person, right? Yeah. Like, scheduling conflict, one person. But this was, like, we're going to keep some people. We're going to keep others. I'm sure some of it was due to scheduling, yeah. right? Like, it's it's 
Yeah, two, absolutely. Two years later, but Joshua Harmon's writing is unbelievable. David Cromer's direction is so thoughtful. And this was a play that I needed as someone Jewish two years ago before things got to the place where they are now. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, the best plays only become more important. Absolutely. And and more potent. I saw it at Manhattan Theater Club uh, in the off-Broadway space as well and really loved it. I will also say, I want to say this for people who get turned off when they hear length. I know it's three hours, y'all. I'm telling you, it don't feel it. I made a joke that I wanted to start telling people, like, the weather, you know, mm-hmm. is 20 degrees, feels like negative five. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be like, is three hours, feels like 90 minutes, yeah. you know? Like, it's all about how long it feels, and this play propels you through it, that it doesn't feel like that much time, and if it does, it's only because it's glorious and you want to savor every minute of it. Like, Absolutely. I really. Um, I mean, if something is I'm much great, more concerned about whether it's great and yeah. whether it validates itself as being that long, which I think this show does, um, than its actual timestamp. No, absolutely. Again, people prejudge and they get nervous when they see something like that. But. You know, if people could sit through three hours of Oppenheimer, why can't they sit through three exactly. hours of this? this? I think this is just as compelling as as Oppenheimer, in my opinion, more so. But hey, that's didn't just who that's who I am. You didn't see Oppenheimer? Bless you. I um, I barbied only. That's what I, I like. Barb. To, you barbed. That's what. I, <laughs> you want to know what Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer is a classic Nolan movie. It's men sitting around going, "I need to make a decision," but here's the issue: that decision. It's going to have implications. <laughs> that's that's Nolan for you. That's a Nolan movie. It's good. But no, Prayer for the French Republic is a lovely play. I'm so excited for it. I, I got to say, this season so far has been very underwhelming for me. Hmm. There have been a couple things that I really loved, and they've both been plays. I loved Jaja's African Hair Braiding. Oh, loved. Fucking delightful. And I thought Pearly Victorious was such a blast. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm very excited to have prayer come in um i've heard amazing things that appropriate i'm really looking forward i just to saw that. it on saturday night did you like it very good okay very good Ec- I, excellent even i would say i called it in my instagram post um i was just gonna say another one that is on the lengthier side sure. and i don't care because it's good doesn't doesn't here's what it. i want to say about this show sure. because i read that log line mm-hmm. and thought Oh, adult children coming to clean out their father's estate. Really? Mm -hmm. Again, question mark. And Brandon Jacobs Jenkins made me eat my words because he, as a playwright, has introduced something absolutely new and absolutely fresh. I'll give you the hint that it's like, but what do these children find in their father's plantation home that maybe brings up an entirely different side of what it means to remember your parents. Absolutely. So, and the ensemble is so well balanced. Everyone is giving. Obviously, Sarah Paulson is just next level when you see her live on stage. Lila Neugebauer is one of my favorite directors. I Mm -hmm. really love watching her stuff. And just like, yeah, I feel like all the pieces come together with it. Is she directing Vanya, Lila? No, someone else, someone else is directing Uncle Vanya. Or no, or is it her? 
It might. Hold on. Hold on. I think it's her. Because Va- the yeah, ar- it is. It I is. Mean, um, be- because adapted obviously by Heidi Schreck, but of course, yes, yes. But directed by Lila. The other two things in the spring that I am I could not be more pumped for are the revivals of Uncle Vanya with that fucking cast, Heidi adapting it, and then also the revival of Doubt, a play that I like, but a cast that I am so fucking here for. Yeah, I the, mean, bring me Tyne Daly any day. Ch- the children need to know that Tyne <laughs> Daly is mother because she's so mother. She's just oh, a phenomenal God, actress. She's so brilliant. Yeah, definitely. Look, I mean, I can't look at this list and say I'm not excited about anything, which no, in and of itself is exciting, right? Like, yeah. an enemy of the people. I saw the adaptation at the Armory, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm I'm interested to see it. If for no, I mean, Amy Herzog, if she hasn't earned our attention with a doll's house, I don't know what will. So I am so thrilled to see her adaptation of another piece. Jeremy Strong is such a legit actor. Michael mm-hmm. Imperioli, like, mm-hmm. that's exciting to me. Cabaret is exciting to me. Days of Wine and Roses, Doubt, Hell's Kitchen, Home, which I know very little about. I think technically it's part of the roundabout season, and I think it, I think it's technically speaking the first thing of the of next season. Yes, it's indeed. Like, yeah, oh it's, yeah. So I guess we shouldn't talk about it. We can. No, it's okay. I'll you have the floor. The I'll abide by the rules. No, you can have the floor. Um, Come on. <laughs> I just I do want to say though. Speaking of Amy and Doll's House, talk about eating your words and not leaving any crumbs. I went and saw that Doll's House with my grandmama, and just based off of like what I had seen about it, I am a. The opposite of an Evo Van Hoffe stan. I don't enjoy him. Okay. And everything I had seen about that doll's house just looked to be like that. I was like, oh, God, is oh, it going to be... It, it, I just thought to myself, like, is this going to be deconstructed and kind of whatever? And I got to tell you... I didn't make that association at all, by the way. So it's very well, funny to just, like, oh, yeah. yeah that's just, I, it's just too I understand I, where yeah. it came from. I understand. But so I go in. It begins... And I gotta say, within the first five minutes, I went, "Oh no, this is not that at all," and I'm I'm having the best time. They so um, all praise to Jamie Lloyd. Amy's, a- Amy's adaptation was wonderful. Amy's adaptation was fantastic. Jamie knew what to do with it. Yep. And so yeah, so I'm excited for another Amy. They, they they collaborated in a way that turned that play into almost a thriller. Completely. It, and I was so here for it. Continue with what else is exciting, Ruthie. I mean, Lampika, I saw Lampika at Williamstown. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was excited. Just It was my first time at Williamstown. I had seen Invisible Thread, mm-hmm. now renamed or re-renamed Back to Witness Did Uganda. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew I liked Matt Gould's music. It is a fascinating story of, like, you know, the... The artists who make the art. Like, it's a little Sunday in the park mm-hmm. in terms of story, um, not in terms of sound. And then Rachel Chavkin always makes something exciting mm-hmm. as a director. So, like, I'm here for that. Mary Jane, we're going to get to see Rachel McAdams on Broadway. Did you see Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret? I did not. Okay. I would very much love it if you do. Okay. <laughs> it's it's a, first of all. homework. It's a what? I mean, you've read the book, right? I actually never have. Well, it's sitting above you. If you ever decide you want to read it, right above my copy of Harriet the Spy, because that those is, that feels right. That that's is what who I, I know about those. Books. <laughs> like those two books together, that sounds like Matt Coplick, Uh underneath the biography of Cheetah Rivera and Rita Hayworth, because I am what gay. But uh, 
It's a lovely book. The movie is a wonderful adaptation. Rachel McAdams as the mother is giving my favorite cinematic performance this year. Mm. She's been nominated for a whole bunch of critics groups, but nothing big yet. And I keep shouting on Instagram to get that Oscar Look, campaign she's happening. she's a real... She's a capital A actor. Sure is. Right? And so I'm excited to see what she's going to do on a stage. Me too. I'm very excited. Um, Paula Vogel mother play. You said Paula Vogel. I'm there. Right? And then you add Lang, and I'm like, okay, yeah, no, I'll, I'll have a firstborn just so you can take it. Totally. <laughs> and then My Son's a Queer. I saw the, like, presentation of that. Mm-hmm. It is truly delightful. Mm-hmm. Rob is very compelling, but I also think it's it's the opposite side of the coin of like so many stories that we've seen of like here's what happens to a young queer child when you tell them that they're wrong being who they are. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that and I'm sure we'll see more that are different takes and important takes on that as well. I'm not saying stop making those because I think we still need to learn from them. Yeah. But equally as important is a story we haven't really heard, which is here's what happens when you tell your queer child to be who they are and it is right to be who they are rather than it is wrong to be who they are. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's exciting and delightful. And it does like, you know, this artwork that's like pink and gold. Mm -hmm. It is a fairy explosion on that stage. I mean, it's all about like how he was in love with Disney characters. Sorry, Rob. Um, it's all about how Rob was in love with story characters and made their father participate in that love. And it is so heartwarming. I'm excited for that. Yeah. That sounds lovely. Prayer, Suffs. Oh, we did not talk about the jukebox musical du jour, The Heart of Rock and Roll, Huey Lewis and the News. I honestly have no idea what to expect or think of this. It will be a surprise no matter what. Yes. Someone else leaked to me who the female lead is in that. I'll tell you off mic because it is not reported publicly yet. Okay. If it's if the lead role is true for the for the, if the female lead is true, uh it'll at the very least be a very charming cast. Okay. Yeah. But uh, there's so many there's still so many unknowns of the season left and there's still kind of room for one or two more shows to come in and fuck things up. Uh, which I I always lo- I love like which a last by, minute. Which he means as make things better. <laughs> I just I love when something comes in and just like excites us all because it's so, it's so last yeah, minute. Yeah, and, like, and just like and then, disrupts expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's happened. I mean, uh, we had that like super last minute transfer of sign in Sydney Brewstein's window, which mm-hmm. got Miriam Silverman her Tony. And I think yeah. I, I think shit like that is so fucking exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll continue going down the list. Please do. So then we have The Notebook. And other than Ingrid Michaelson's uh, music and, you know, that's exciting that we're having her debut as a composer lyricist for Broadway mm-hmm. and Becca Brunstetter as the um, book writer for that. I've seen um, plays by Becca, but this will be exciting. I've never seen a musical by Becca before. People out there who are This Is Us fans, Becca worked on uh, that writing team. Headed up the writing team? Worked on the writing team. One or the other. Um, but let me tell you why I'm excited about The Notebook. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's actually going to be something very different. Um, because they have three people instead of 
two people playing each character, yeah. that to me already says like, okay, you're doing something different. Yeah. And then I've also heard that they switched the time period. Mm. So that changes things and says to me again, you're looking at this as a completely fresh theatrical piece, which is what I think improves the odds the greatest when you're doing an adaptation. Yeah. And then I'll also say that Ryan Vasquez, hello, there is so much talent and I want to just like bathe in his voice. And I just saw Joy Woods in I Can Get It For You Wholesale. Mm -hmm. So Ryan and Joy are playing middle Allie and middle Noah. And between that talent alone. So I'm I'm so glad I'm so glad you said that. I also saw Joy in Wholesale and that that woman magnetic magnetic an amazing voice an amazing presence just I'm, like truly like Fosse dancer-esque in that she rolled her shoulder and I and I just it, wanted to know like was her shoulder glowing is mm-hmm. that why I looked at it from the inside out and on top of all that I have one more person to fucking say I said it last time I'm gonna say it again Marianne goddamn Plunkett Tony yes win- Tony winning actress for the musical me and my girl She's the one who replaced Bernadette Peters in Sunday in the Park with George on Broadway. She beat out Patti Lapone for that job <laughs> when she was a nobody, by the way. She was the second replacement in Agonist of and God. And she's just been kicking it in the Apple plays ever since rocking the off-Broadway. Pla- and playing Jody, <laughs> Jody Sawyer's mom in center stage. That woman is incredible. She's coming back to us in a musical, in a Broadway musical, for the first time in like 35 years yeah. and I am here for it so here for it so here for it yeah let's do it mama all right let's do it let's continue okay so speaking of the other Ryan Vasquez choices is the <laughs> outsiders yeah, which, is. you know he did not choose but other people chose but I am like I'm I'm intrigued because I've known about the adaptation for so long mm-hmm. I'm intrigued because if Brody Grant's voice did not melt my heart in the Encores production of Parade, nothing did. I mean, so to hear him sing again is going to be so great. Mm-hmm. But I'm here for like a band of brothers type musical. And I'm also a choreography girl. Mm-hmm. So um, Rick and Jeff Cooperman, I really love their choreography. Some people might have seen it in Alice by Heart off Broadway. Um, I'm excited to see their movement. And I also think Justin Levine is a dang genius. Justin, so, Le- Justin Levine. And Adam Rapp, The Sound Inside, was such a fantastic play. So sound, like The Sound Inside fucking slapped. Levine did the arrangements for Moulin Rouge, Rouge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He he did a master. I I have my thoughts on that show, but he did a masterful job. But like more so than just together. right. So I just want to clarify for the listeners that like it was not just the arrangements of like here are the songs now make vocal and orchestral arrangements. No, 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 it no. was like what song fits where and what two verses of this song will precede this verse of this song will mm-hmm. precede the bridge of this and, song. And made like it all masterful fit. puzzle piecing and yeah. storytelling. And so to hear what he's going to do with something original, mm-hmm. I'm really and something that he wrote alongside, like no. I said, this collective. Um I'm I'm excited to hear that. Uh, same, same. And listen, you know, I'm all for shows that are a group of boys just dancing. <laughs> it's something that I enjoyed about Harmony. I was I called Harmony like Newsy, like the when the Newsies fans grow up and they decide that they want someone, a boy they can take home to mother. Sure. Now they have Harmony because those uh-huh. are those are Newsies and Tuxes. Uh, but then you have the Outsiders, which are just you know, fifties Newsies. 
Yeah, I was going to say, like, still dirty and running around the streets. Yeah, but they're fighting for social justice, too. So, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I appreciate I appreciate it. I'm very, I'm very intrigued by The Outsiders. I don't know what to expect yet. Uh, Angelina Jolie was sold on it enough that she is lead producing. I know. But here's the thing about Hollywood actors. They don't really know how to produce a Broadway show. No, but the fact that she, well, well, we're going to find out. But the thing is, she's not lead producing alone. She's lead producing with partners. So yes. she's going to be able to learn. But it was her saying, I want to be in the ring and I want to have, and not yep. just in the ring as a co-producer where I'm going to put my money. Like, I'm going to learn as well on this show. And I'm going to put my clout behind this show. Yes. I'm going to get people to pay a t- fucking attention. Exactly. Which I, again, I appreciate. I Listen. I love Angelina, and and she's someone who, if she doesn't know how to do it, she's gonna learn how to do it because Angelina Jolie doesn't like to flop. She yeah. likes <laughs> she Angelina Angelina Jolie likes to top, not flop, and and that's, and that's all she that on that. that that's all she wrote. Um, then you have the Who's Tommy, which I I did Tommy in college, and I'm not into disturbing plot lines as such. Um, After we just talked about Dear Evan Hansen for so long, the most disturbing of shows. Not compared to Tommy. <laughs> I I mean, truly, I think this is next. Well, okay, here's what I'll say. Sure. Particularly sexual trauma. Sure. Right? That's really hard for, I think, hard for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think it should be. It's um, it's a hard subject matter for and sure. And it's hard, hard for me to watch watch things about that yeah. that being said i hear the production coming out of chicago is mm-hmm. phenomenal i hear the lead um is fantastic mm-hmm. i hear it's totally fresh and new which is exactly what you want to hear when you hear the word revival even though it's the revival of a rock and roll musical that kind of like broke things the first time around yeah so yeah i'm like i'm in, i'm intrigued because the original staging from 1992 is a, or 93 Three. Is, is, for 93 is a staging that has lived in infamy yeah i mean i i speak to a lot of directors and who talk about like the productions that changed you know their thinking on how to stage stuff the ones that are like definitive and you know everyone has theirs you know it's Hal Prince, Avita, Michael Bennett, a chorus line mm-hmm. tommy toon grand hotel mm-hmm. des mackinoff tommy mm-hmm. and you know, Des Des started a whole new way to incorporate multimedia with with the original Tommy, and so it's I'm fascinated to see how he comes back to it with this production because sometimes with directors when they do a revival of a show they've done before, it doesn't always work in my opinion. Cough cough, James Lapine cough cough, and I I'm very interested to see what happens with Des because I think when Des is good he's so good and then there are times when I haven't been as into him but with Tommy I don't know I, I I'm not well there's I'm also not, something not about wary. him not being only the director that he's the co writer yes, on it as I, well exactly it changes his perspective on it I think that there's there's a lot more in the camp of me excited for Tommy than there is about me being wary about it. Is what I'm trying to say. Like yeah. I, I, I'm all the things about it that should make me wary. I'm not wary of. Sure. I think that it'll be a very exciting production. It's I'm I, I'm looking forward to having another revival that's not Merrily or Cabaret to come in and just like excite us all. Have, be another option for the revival front. Sure. Um, Although I will say I think Merrily is like. Well, ma- now that Merrily has announced that they're extending through July, it's 
at the very least, it is Jonathan Groff and Marilee saying, like, so we're officially the frontrunners of our categories, <laughs> and y'all can catch up if you'd like. <laughs> All right, we got three shows to finish up the announced season thus mm-hmm. far. Okay, so The Wiz, I mean, Joy Machine. Mm-hmm. Like, I also say that, like, while I think there's going to there's going to be a lot of quality this spring, mm-hmm. the tone is not a lot of, like, happy peppy. And mm-hmm. The Wiz, I think, is going to give us the substance with that, like, yeah. obviously technicolor, bright, vibrant vibe about it. I'm hearing amazing things about Nichelle mm-hmm. Lewis, who's playing Dorothy. I saw Deborah Cox sing at a gala and was just jaw on the floor. Yeah. I'm stoked about Jacquel's, uh, Jacquel Knight's choreography. Mm-hmm. Let's see some whiz. I am very excited to see it. I'm, again, I'm trying very hard to go in without preconceived notions. I saw a couple of stills and I was a little disappointed that they were going aesthetically for Oz similar to the movie of like it's new york city but done oz style because Mm. what i always loved about the stage show of the wiz is that it is the wizard of oz and it didn't have that new york city aesthetic that's something that the movie did Uh uh-huh uh and because as we've discussed movies live on longer and are much more mainstream that has now sort of weirdly become the imprint on the show of like oh it's like a quote-unquote urban wizard of oz I'm like no it's a joyful earnest version of the wizard of oz told with a very different perspective from these specific writers mm. uh but again i have to let that go at the door when i go in because i'm if it works it works i will be thrilled uh i just love that score that score is yeah. fire i'm so excited to hear it with a big band and amazing voices just like singing to my mouth all of it i love, <laughs> I love that whole score um, Vanya, obviously, we already talked about. With the cast that got me pregnant just by reading the announcement. <laughs> my Lady of the Lake, Anika Noni Rose, is going to be back on the Broadway. And I could not be more pregnant. It's, she, I adore her. I adore her. Add on, I mean, to, the, add on to the fact that it's Carell making his debut. Allison cool. fucking Pill. I love Allison Pill. Jane Howdyshell. Jane Howdyshell. Alfred, Alfred Molina. Alfred Molina. No, it's a rock star cast. Cheaty from fucking Good Place. My, like, my God, just in uh, in my veins. I'm very excited. And Heidi is such a... William Jackson Harper is his name, folks. I know, but I just... Every, <laughs> I can't... Every time I think of him, I, I lose all Chiriana memory. Gonye. Because I just think of his swole upper body in that tiny and he, shirt. I saw him on stage um, for the first time this... Was it over the summer? He was at Roundabout. Yeah. Um... Really, really compelling. Yeah. Um, and then the W, Water for Elephants. Um, and I'll say that aside from the things that we've already said, mm-hmm. I saw that presentation where they showed like tw- the first 20 minutes. Same. I got so excited. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Jessica Stone is such an exciting musical director of musicals, not mm-hmm. musical director. Um, Rick Ellis is a great book writer. Mm-hmm. Um but the puppetry, I'm so excited. I get excited just for innovations in any segment of theater. Mm-hmm. And I'm a design nerd. So the fact that we're going to get to see Circus again, which we haven't gotten to see since Pip in 2012, was mm-hmm. that? Um, 13, 2013. And new types of puppetry, which just open up different 
sides of your imagination. That's the thing that I'm excited about with this show and with the season in general, yeah. as I would say. is like, I, I want my theater to feel genuine, but mm-hmm. I don't need it to feel literal. I much prefer imagination, and mm-hmm. I think, I hope, Water for Elephants is going to give us a lot of that. There are a lot of shows for me this season that are a question mark and not a skeptical question mark, not like a why, but more sort of a, I'm I don't know. G- exactly. And, and that's in a way that's very exciting for me. Like I, I love to make like super bold, early Tony predictions, just not because of you know <laughs> what's actually the best, but because, you know, it's like, it's the closest thing I have to betting on sports. Same, sure. with, same with the Oscars. It's just fucking fun. Yeah. Um, and you know, with the with the spring, I like. There's just so much I don't know yet. Uh, I also was at that presentation for Water for Elephants, and even in those twenty twenty five minutes in a black box where they didn't have much to go off of, there was so much imagery that was just stunning. I am interested to see what changes they made to the text, but of course, the first twenty minutes are not necessarily indicative of what the whole show is. There was a lot that I enjoyed. I think here's I, three words for Water for Elephants. Go for it, Paul. Alexander, Alexander Nolan. Ruthie. Ding, 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 Ruthie, ding, ding, ding. Ruthie, Ruthie, Ruthie. <laughs> so, okay. I'm going to say this, and then you can have the floor. because I just need to get out of the way because I won't be able to hear a goddamn word you say until I say what I say. <laughs> Paul Alexander Nolan, for me, is one of the, if not the most exciting musical theater actors we have right now. I adore him. I think he is so special. He, first of all, sings like a dream. Seriously. He's an incredible actor. And he has been fantastic in pretty much everything I've seen him in. Mm -hmm. Not always in things that I've loved, but he has always been a bright shining star. And the man keeps not getting nominated for Tony Awards. And I sit here, Ruthie, before you and God. And I say, what does the man need to do? He sang the bejesus out of Jesus Christ Superstar. He, Seriously. He was the other great thing alongside Carmen Cusack in Bright Star. He was the only good thing in Dr. Zhivago. He was smarmy and awful in the best kind of way in Parade. And he hung dong in Slave Play and was <laughs> lovely about it. What does my man need to do to get recognition from the Tonys? Well, here's what I'll say is that whether or not this is the performance to do it, I think that that resume and that there are some people who just, like, would you rather have one Tony nomination or award and, like, never a career again or the career that he's had? And I don't know that you have to choose between the two. But some people... But if, <laughs> but, but if you are choosing, like, gosh, I would hope we'd choose... Paul's path and I just think that what's also incredible in the roles you just listed is like the man played literal Jesus literal and also can play the villain as you know the character in Water for Elephants is much more like leaning towards that like dangerous shady side and so his flexibility Mm -hmm. in his acting um the vocals the Everything yeah. about it. And if... Accent work. And the... The man's from Canada. He sure is. And uh, if the... Again, there was... we the, That role wasn't shown very much in that presentation, right? It was like... He was like the last number, I want to say. Well, it was small, but it also wasn't him in that presentation. No, I know. It was Sebastian. But yeah. But, but based off of the material 
I do think he's going to get a good amount of time to shine because he's yeah based off the material yeah and based and saying that the material is the book not the movie yeah um i would say yeah the character is substantial because he gets he gets a lot of stage time he's also a very seductive villain yeah and that is something that hey he can do it because he can do it again we're gonna have to see what this adaptation does with it yeah and 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 just everything about this cast that they've assembled i'm very excited by izzy michaela is a young actress in musical theater who has really impressed me in past works i think she's so she's a charming with a lovely voice but Mm -hmm. she's also not afraid to get weird Mm -hmm. i loved her in the prom uh and i didn't and i've always championed her performance in the prom and you can guys can listen to me talk about that more in the prom episode but it wasn't until i saw other people play that role where i was like oh what she did was really special Hmm. she brought a lot to it isn't that amazing how sometimes that can happen absolutely yeah yeah and that I look forward to seeing what she does with this show, what how large that role is. Because if it's substantial enough, she could be a contender in that leading actress category as sure. well. I mean, again, frontrunners, I couldn't fucking tell you. I mean, I can't even go near awards, to be honest. I know. It's, Not it, only is it's the very hour getting you. late. It's late. But um, I think there's just so much more to see. Again, with the idea of like not prejudging, I can't. Guess who's going to be a front runner before they perform? Let me also be very clear, guys. Ruthie's relation to the Tonys is very different to mine. Like, it's for you, it's, <laughs> oh, God, okay, here comes the Red Bull. Whereas I'm like, oh, yeah, you get to watch it on TV and just enjoy it from afar. Ruthie's like, and it, I do enjoy it too, but yes, it is. You're um, in the thick of it far more than I am. Definitely in the thick of it. Yeah. Um, you got to stretch a, soon. A place where I. I prefer for it to be that way. So yeah. I, I like where I am. I'm, I'm lucky to be where I am. Yeah. And it is also hard work to be where I am. But, um, you know, it's that way for a lot of people. But, again, like, I think that overall what I'm seeing for the spring is a lot of choices. Mm-hmm. And that particularly if tourists, albeit domestic or international, come mm-hmm. here for this robust season, what they're going to say is, oh, I came for one show and I saw two. Mm-hmm. Or I came for two shows and I saw three. And that it can hopefully, like, all boats rise, you know? That we can hopefully show that, like, Broadway has enough to offer all these different people. Mm-hmm. And the musicals and plays that we just went through are so variable, mm-hmm. right? Like, you cannot tell me that there is not a piece of theater for every single person out there in that list of just, again, the new productions for the spring. Mm-hmm. Not even mentioning, like, what opens fall what? and summer that some what of them are still do. there. Yeah. And <laughs> not what is ongoing, yeah. right? Like, it's just not even taking into account any of those things. And then when you add in the off-Broadways and the off-off-Broadways of the world, it's just, like, anyone who thinks that theater is not for them... I challenge you (laughs) to look at any one of these things and pick the thing that intrigues you, whether it's the plot, whether it's the star, whether it's the music, whether it's the movement, whether it's the design, whatever it is, because they're truly, when we have, the reason I believe in more is more is because the more choices we have within the limited constraint, right? We don't have infinite choices, but we have more choices. Mm -hmm. The more different types of people we're going to be able to attract. 1,000%. When people say they don't like theater or don't like musicals, to me it's like saying you don't like food. 
I'm like, there's there's so many different kinds of cuisines and recipes. Well, I always say it's like going to see. Let's say you saw a a musical you didn't like. Yeah. And then you just go, well, I don't. I guess I just don't like musicals. No one would ever go to a movie, see a movie they didn't like, and be like, well, I guess I just don't like all of movies. Mm-hmm. Be like, no, I didn't like that movie, or that was a bad movie, or yeah. I don't like that director, or whatever it is, but you'd go back and try. And I know that there's a price differential there that allows people to try some movies in a way that you can't try all Broadway shows. But to that I say, like, Broadway ends up on tour. Mm-hmm. These shows en- end up licensed in regional theaters. Like, there are places and ways to see theater mm-hmm. that is suited to you and will be what you are looking for. And not every piece of theater is going to be that, just the same way not every movie is going to be that. And you just have to find your way. Yeah. you. I When people ask me for recommendations, I'm always – asking are you asking what i like or are you asking what i recommend for you yes because the two are very different and it's not a judgment call just you know i work i work in a space with a lot of let's call them what they are straight men who you know <laughs> more are more on the sports side but there a lot of them have actually recently moved to new york and they want to try broadway and i'm like well tell me about like the movies you like the tv yes. shows you like the books That's you read how i always ask yeah. i'm like do you want and something also spectacle? to say as a woman who enjoys sports and theater <laughs> The two are not mutually exclusive. No, In they fact, are for me. <laughs> the tension and the drama that are the reason you watch a lot of sports are what theater is built around. Sure. Listen. So go see a show. Go see a show, then go see a soccer game. I Just because <laughs> sports are not in my wheelhouse doesn't mean they can't be in others. Uh, Ruthie, this has been delightful. Indeed Thank you. it has. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. Thank you for braving today with me (laughs) you're welcome you have done so much and continue to do so much and i appreciate you where can people find you if you want them to find you people can find me on instagram at ruthie fierceberg um it's there to try and help people get it to pronounce it correctly um at ruthie fierceberg on instagram you can go to my website ruthiefierberg.com f-i-e-r-b-e-r-g Um, and sign up for my monthly newsletters. And of course, you can read me every single day on broadwaynews.com. You can read all the articles there to your little heart's content. Subscribe to your Broadway briefing. It's once daily newsletter that compiles all of the content being written about all theater across the globe. Um, Some written by me, some written by many other talented writers. So if you want to be up on the news of the day that's the only way to do it perfect i love that if you want to follow me i'm on instagram only at matt Koplik, usual spelling if you like the podcast you can give us a nice five star rating or a little review as always if you write a review i will read it on the pod and i did get a review recently and that it's short but i will read it and i will put in post the light in the piazza overture so play the music <clears throat> Five stars. Love! Exclamation point. This week's shorter episode was great. They're referring to the King and I episode, which was 90 minutes. Uh, would love it if more episodes were around that length. End of review. Now, I shared that review. <laughs> Listen, they want my episode short, so they wrote a short review. Uh, I posted that Content on- Content matches form. I posted that on Instagram 
to be like, oh, you know, whatever. And and it was right before I released the Promises Promises episode, which is almost three hours. And I was like, sorry that this episode's going to be, this next episode's going to be longer. And the flood I got from listeners that were like, absolutely not. I don't want 90 minutes. I want two to four hours. Like, give give it to me long, daddy. Oh, well, all I, right. Here, here we go. So I'm just saying, guys, if that's what you want, you got to write in and put your reviews that say, screw shorter episodes. Give me episodes as long as Lawrence of Arabia, please. And I will do <laughs> well, my damn best. I'll also say, if you like long episodes, the podcast of mine that you mentioned mm-hmm. to begin with, thank you so much much um why we theater is also some like well not long compared to yours i guess but they're like an hour and 15 hour and a half those are long yeah well also my episodes they they vary i've had 90 minutes i've had an hour i've had three and a half hours i try not to go that long just it things happen we as ta- we, we said talk. before it's not about the run time it's not about the timestamp. it's about how long it feels exactly three hours feels like one hour that's what we always Aim for. Ruthie, we close out every episode with a Broadway diva. I put her in post. Uh, but I would like for you to choose what Broadway diva is going to sing us out today. <laughs> Shoshana Bean. <laughs> and I'm going to end it with a button of her throwing spaghetti on a plate. Like she does. <laughs> like she does in Hell's Kitchen. All right, that's it. Shoshana Bean is going to close us out. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Join us next week for... I'm pretty sure it's either Carousel or Heathers. It's one of the two, for sure. Uh, until then, have a great... I think this is coming out oh, this is coming out this week. So yeah, have a great Christmas or Hanukkah, whichever you celebrate. Or if you don't celebrate either, just have a good week. And uh, I'll and see New you... New Year. And, well, yeah. this is gonna, The next episode will be coming out right before New Year. But yeah, have a happy... So don't have a good... Well, Ru- Ruthie wishes you a happy New Year. <laughs> I'll wish you a happy New Year next week. And that's it. Thank you so much. And uh, take us away, Shoshana. I'll give you cars and a townhouse in Turmeric and a fur and a diamond ring. And we'll get married in Spain on my yacht today and we'll honeymoon in Beijing. And you'll meet stars in the parties I throw in my villas in Nice and Paris in June. And I thought, okay. And I took a breath. And I got my yacht. And the years went by. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.